Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Russell Shaw with Realty One Group in Phoenix, Arizona. Last year, he closed 403 transactions with a total sales volume of $55 million. His average sales price was $136,000, of which 30% were buyers and 70% were sellers. He operates a team with 18 members, two listing specialists, five buyer specialists, one general manager, one operations manager, one contract negotiator, two transaction managers, two short sale negotiators, one short sale processor, one client care coordinator, and three administrative. Russell Shaw is the team leader of the Russell Shaw Group. He has been an agent for 34 years and works the Metro Phoenix market. Russell is a billion-dollar agent. He has sold over $1 billion worth of homes in his career. In his best year, 2006, Russell sold 405 homes worth $104 million. But it's not always been this good. Russell was an average, ordinary agent for his first 12 years in the business, closing about 20 transactions per year. He was tired of living paycheck to paycheck. Russell decided he would either make it big or get out and do something else. He learned and implemented the number one most successful strategy for rising to the top in real estate, and he will share it with you in detail. Russell is the godfather of radio ads. Dozens of agents have learned from the master and duplicated his successful ads in markets around the country. Radio and TV advertising is the source of 80% of his business, and he invests over $600,000 each year. Russell goes into great detail about what works, what doesn't, and how you can make radio and TV work for you. He describes scripts, hot buttons, keywords, production, station selection, cost, best days of the week, frequency, mistakes, and more. Russell also talks in-depth about listings, listing specialists, disc personality tests, short sell seller seminars, personal newspapers, and more. Russell will disclose the number one most important skill any agent needs to have to survive and thrive in any market. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Russell. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Mike. Russell, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you were doing before you got into real estate. Oh, actually, I was in the life insurance business. 
it uh, was something I, I'm not saying it's a bad business, but I hated it. I always struggled to uh, make myself work. I couldn't believe how much I didn't like it. I would keep giving myself these pep talks that I wanted to do it, but the truth is I didn't want to do it. When I got into real estate, it was almost unbelievable to me that I was so accustomed when I told someone I was in the insurance business, they would sort of walk the other way, so like they didn't want to talk about life insurance. So what was interesting is when you mentioned you could walk through a grocery store and tell someone you were in the real estate business, and everyone wants to talk about it. So finding people that wanted to talk to you about your business to say it wasn't hard to do would be an understatement. I don't know how you could avoid doing it unless you just literally never told anyone you were a real estate agent. So I just found that to be a marked difference. And I did actually fairly well my first year, nothing like I do now, but in terms of what is probably considered successful in the industry, I would have, you know, I was doing like, oh, my first 12 years in the business, I was doing between 17, 22 deals a year that's oddly enough considered successful. I mean, companies now that uh, average, where the agents average doing 10 or 11 deals a year, they brag about it. Like this actually was a big plus uh, that they, they, that they're, I'm serious. This is actually something that people are, they're, they're going like, well, our agents are more successful because we, our agents average 11 deals a year. And I think we take the average sales price in our area and go now take that times 11 or 12 or something like that and go try to live on it. It's just, it's not enough money. And uh, I have many staff members that work for me make more money than that. I mean, it's just, it's not very much money. So really and truly, my first years in the business, I struggled because I was always living from paycheck to paycheck, from closing to closing. And I knew there was something better available, but I didn't know how to do it. And what that something is, this is a well-kept secret apparently, uh, is be a lister. (laughs) And it took me quite a while to learn how to be a lister. Uh, What I know now is that most agents never learn to list, and what stops them from learning to list is they think they already know. And that is the biggest barrier to learning anything is having the uh, false idea you already know. What most agents who who think they know how to list, I'm not being condescending here, but what, what most agents who think they know how to take listings, these are people who do about 12 deals a year, and maybe four or five of those deals are listings. And all of their listings come from people who already know them, like them, and trust them. Well, they actually haven't learned to take listings. What they've learned to do is make friends with buyers, and then that person already will go, hey, why don't you come list my house? I was, since we just bought one or something like that. But if you're going to take listings in quantity, you are going to have to retrain yourself. And it's a completely different type of work. Working buyers is almost exclusively relationship-based selling. Uh, being able to like have an affable personality and likable and be trustworthy and so forth, and you're you're qualified. That alone will not get you listings. It'll only get you listings from people who already know you, like you, and trust you. But that's again, when you go after them and start really going after them, first thing you notice is it is 
if you're going to do it, it is presentation-based selling. It is not relationship-based selling. And it's lonely work. That's actually an interesting point where if you're working buyers, it's got this, I don't know, you're driving around in the car, it's almost sort of like a party uh, if, you, if, you have, <laughs> if, if, if you have people you like. You know what I mean? Like if, if you're working a buyer that you really genuinely go, I like them, there's an almost party atmosphere, like you're schmoozing and this is a lot of fun and spending the time together and so forth. Going after listings is nothing like that, and anyone who has that idea, they're just not going to take very many listings because it just doesn't work that way. The, the difference is, and I know there's tons of people who will disagree with what I'm about to say, and I'll just go on record as saying uh, they're wrong, uh, but uh, if you say who pays the commission, there's no question in my mind who pays the commission. The seller pays the commission. And uh, there are people who will say, well, yes, but they're paying it with money they got from the buyer. Well, if the seller sells it on a for-sale-by-owner basis, uh, he didn't pay a commission, so he didn't pay it with the buyer's money. He paid it with his own money, and he's always paying it with his own money. And the reason I'm saying that is to make a point that regardless of all of the people who I believe are mostly misguided, who want to uh, separate uh, commissions from the MLS and this sort of thing. The truth of the matter is, is that when you're working a buyer, you're not really asking them to give you any money. You're actually providing a valuable, valuable service, and you're doing it essentially from their point of view for free. And there's the difference, because when you go in to sell a house, let's just pretend that you were going to charge a 6% commission on a $200,000 house, or let's make it a $300,000 house. Uh, that would be $18,000, and you're going in going, I'm going to give you a nice sign, and here's what my brochure looks like, and I want you to list with me, and I'd like you to write me a check for uh, $18,000. Well, if that's your listing presentation, you might not get us to understand, though, but that's actually the difference, and that is what the difference is between someone who's learning to list, because it's like, what are you going to say to show them that you're actually worth that amount of money. And there is a listing presentation. It's not a much bunch of little flip charts and so forth. It's as, it's as though every seller in the country uh, went to some class or a school of some kind where the instructor passed out a mimeograph sheet of questions, about 18, 20 questions, and they said on this list, these are the questions to ask a realtor when they come to your house to list your home. Uh, don't ever let them see the list. Don't ever let the agent see this list. Uh, keep it a secret, but you'll, you'll promise us you'll keep this a secret. We'll let you leave with a copy of it so you can be sure and stump the agents. And you get stuff, I'm just, I'm, you know, like uh, we didn't want to pay 6%. Or we didn't, we have a friend in the business. There's, there's a, somebody with uh, Remax will do it for less. And that, those are the kinds of things. I'm not going to run off the whole list because it doesn't matter. Uh, the way you compile the list, the only valid way, in my opinion, to compile the list is go on enough listing appointments that you find out all the questions that they have. And when you get stumped, uh, you won't get stumped by that one again because you'll work out an answer to that one before you go on your next appointment. And I believe that an agent needs to go on at least 50, that's 5-0 appointments, just to get their sea legs. 
It's not a matter of did you take listings on them, because if I were coaching someone, I don't care if they take a listing. It's did they go on an appointment? Did they get face-to-face at the kitchen table or at the dining room table with the seller? And if the answer is no, it was not an appointment. And, you, you know, when I hear new agents or even veteran, well, we list 95% of the appointments we go on. Now, I, I think that kind of statement tells me the person doesn't keep very good stats or they're so uh, ego-motivated on making the statement. And if I'm rubbing someone the wrong way, I want to say good um, because they're not going on enough appointments. That's just that simple. They're just not going on enough appointments. If the only people you call on are people you already know, you're not going on enough enough appointments. Have you developed a list of these common objections on a listing appointment? Oh, sure. I actually, I I learned this from a man who wrote books. They're out of print now. Uh, When I got in the business in 1978, they were the best-selling books in real estate. His name was Gail Hemma, G-A-E-L-H-I-M-M-A-H. The books were Listing Magic, Listing Master, and he listed FISBOs, and he would take a listing a day, and he wouldn't eat dinner until he got his listing. And he was a very disciplined guy. He retired to Hawaii. It's not a matter of, here's the list. I, if I compiled the list, I wouldn't give it to anyone. It'd be a disservice. I know that sounds funny. It would be a colossal disservice because what has to happen is you have to go on appointments. There's nothing else will ever matter if the, if the person doesn't go on appointments, if they don't work it out. I mean, you can start working out what would be some objections, but you get if they don't go on appointments and get face-to-face with people, and, and if someone's interested in seeing what a listing appointment consists of on my – I have a blog called Number One. That's N-U-M-B-E-R, numeral one, home agent, number one, homeagent.com. And there I have written up extensively uh, everything about a listing appointment, what kind of uh, materials to use, uh, what kind of binding material to use, uh, like so the, the material lays flat at the table, where to sit, where they're supposed to sit, everything. I've written it all up, and anyone, this, it's strictly for agents to use. I mean, it's not something I'm not, you can put it in, put the link in there, even to the specific posts that they wrote back probably in, I don't remember, oh, maybe 2007, 2008, I won't remember, but it's, I've got this material of, if, like for someone, what would a listing appointment consist of, but they have to go on the appointments to get it. It's, it's not something they're going to, like someone who doesn't go on listing appointments just won't know how to list. I, I don't know how else I'd say it. You currently have a listing specialist, someone who goes out on these appointments that you've trained to do this. Yes. How did you train them? Did you just train them in the school of the hard knocks by throwing them out into the appointment multiple times, or did you try to give them some type of personal training before that? All those things. Uh, the first thing I would say to anyone, and I, this is something I've learned the hard way, and I've seen people ignore it, I'm about to tell you, and they learned the hard way, don't violate this rule. So for anyone, I would say the most important book ever written on the subject of how to grow your real estate business would undoubtedly be The Millionaire Real Estate Agent by Gary Keller. I would start with that statement. When you start turning over various hats, the very, very, very last hat you turn over is taking listings. Like you get rid of every other thing you do before you get rid of that one. 
any attempt to sort of jump the shark on that one and get rid of it earlier and delegate it will just meet with complete failure. Like you get, you, you get rid of admin first, you hire an administrative assistant, get rid of your paperwork, then get rid of working buyers, get a buyer assistant, but don't, don't reverse that order, get a buyer assistant. And after and you get somebody to do contracts for you, get all that other stuff, the last thing you do is get rid of listings. And what I did when I first hired my first listing specialist, this would have been, I think, 15 years ago, but it might have been 14. I, I don't remember exactly. I had him come with me for a week just to watch me. And then for the following week, I went with him to watch him. By the time I hired my second lister, one time I had three, by the time I hired my second lister, I could not go in the house and have them watch me because of my TV ads. I'd become too much of a celebrity, and all they'd be seeing is the public, oh, hi, you're here, oh, you're the guy on TV, and, and honestly, they wouldn't be able to learn anything. So I, I, I replicated that procedure as much as I could by having my top listing guy have the new lister go with him and watch him, and then he went with them, that kind of thing. But I, I couldn't go into the house anymore. They, they weren't going to learn anything by watching me because they weren't going to get to see me do it. <laughs> so you had your listing agent shadow you, and then uh -huh. you watched him for a week, and then he became the instructor. Uh, later, yes, that's exactly right. One of the first listings I gave him, he didn't know it at the time, but I mean, you, you turn taking listings over last, and you do it when you've hit the point where you can't keep taking the listings because you're too busy. And when you start turning away business, see, when you have four, when you have four listing appointments in a day, and you do that three, four days back to back, uh, here's what's interesting. You, you wind up going on appointments where you hope they don't list. Like, you're too tired. I, I'm, I'm not making a joke. I mean, well, this is not my problem right now, but at that time, that was a problem I was solving. You go on an appointment, and you're thinking, if they list, it's going to take me an hour when I get back to the office to finish filling out these forms. I'm so damn tired right now. I hope they want to put it off, and I'll come back on a day when I'm not so busy. When you get to where, oh, that's too far, or that's too late, or that's too early, I don't want to take that, I don't want to drive all the way over there, it, that's time to hire a lister. That, that's when you go, you're, you're, turn, you're, you're, you're getting rid of business anyway. So the only appointments I gave him the first month or so were people I would have never gone on the appointment anyway. That's what was funny. He, he didn't know that then. I mean, I never would have said to him, you understand, I'm not giving you any of the, what I consider the good ones. <laughs> 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 but I wasn't. And it was just, I, I, these were the ones that I thought, I don't care what he does, because I wasn't going to go anyway. And when I started getting closings off the ones he was going on, I started giving him more and more business. So initially, I was doing 80% of the listing appointments. He was doing 20. And as he got better and better, it just I changed it ultimately to where I was doing about 20%, and he was doing about 80%. Then what happened, and I don't recommend what I'm about to say to anyone, I got cancer. And once I got started on chemo, I mechanically couldn't go. This this was uh, 11 years ago. I couldn't uh, go on the appointments because I was just too doped up with chemo. 
So I uh, then took my top buyer agent, and every time I've put a lister on post, it is always, without exception, we've promoted them from someone who was handling buyers. I would never, under any circumstances, hire a lister. I mean, I just would never do it. I just turned the business down because I may as well. You just wind up with overpriced crap or someone who doesn't really care. It's just a different deal. So I hire buyer agents once they're a proven, proven, proven team member, and I need a lister, that's where I get them. But I don't ever go out and hire them. So once I knew that he was doing a great job, and once I had chemo, I took my top buyer agent uh, at the time, and made her a lister, and where she was doing about half listings, half buyers, and eventually it got to where she was doing just fine. And so I had two listers, and when I brought a third one on, when she was starting to burn out uh, from too many appointments during the market in 2005, it just worked out that way. So I, I haven't been on a list. I haven't had a buyer in my car since uh, 93, and I haven't been on a listing appointment since 2001. For a listing specialist, how many listings can they take? What's the maximum number that you think they can take before you need to bring on another one? Oh, let me think. Depends on their tolerance for work and their number of hours. My top guy, actually, I would say with Bill RJC now, if they got three appointments a day, they'd be happy. They could comfortably go on three every day if they wanted, if we had that much work. Right now, we don't have that many appointments, but they could do that. Uh, two a day would be a walk in the park for them, because that's all they do is just to do the listings. I mean, they don't do anything else but that. They're not doing contracts or follow-up on the stuff or anything like that. So the way I have it organized, three in a day, to two to three, depending on the agent's workload. I think of it in terms of number of appointments. All this listing specialist does is go out to the appointment, get the listing signed, bring it back to the office, and they're done. Yeah, they order up the sign, they put it in MLS, that kind of thing. Like they put it into multiple listing, upload the photos they've got, and then they're out. Then I have my admin staff take it from there. The listing specialist does take photos and measurements of the property, Mm -hmm. and that information will go into the system. How long do you think that it takes the typical start to finish for a listing specialist when they list a property? How many hours do they have into that? Well, because we list in a very broad geographic area, like if I say that the city of Phoenix is 480 square miles, the cities around Phoenix, if I tell you we, my, my, my office, we will list between, pending on the year, between four and 600 listings a year. We list properties in about an area that would be approximately 2,000 square miles. That's huge. It is huge. And so that's so different. When you're doing radio and television, like if someone goes, I wouldn't want to do that, well, then you probably won't want to advertise on radio or TV because radio and TV, if you just think of the term broadcasting, you start to get a concept of this isn't something you're controlling on where this goes. And so it goes all over. So if you're going going to pay the rates for an ad, even if you have an effective ad that's been tested, you're going to go, uh, like television, If you, I'm not talking cable now, travels, it's about a 75-mile signal. So you're paying for that advertising whether you're using it or not. So unlike a geographic farm that's got a contained thing, it, this is not contained. 
we might get a call from an area that's, say, roughly an hour away. We go there to take a listing. So they have two hours driving from our office. You understand, round trip. We allow two hours for the average listing appointment. And I figure every time they take a listing, so right now they're going to take listings on about half the appointments, it's going to take them an additional hour to fill out the papers after they take the listing and put it in the system and so forth. And how long is the appointment typically from start to finish while they're at the house? I would say two hours. So two hours. So if they drive an hour, they're there for two hours, drive back an hour, they have maybe five hours into it? If they took the listing. But but some appointments are short. I mean, it depends on what kind of personality you're talking to. Like if you're familiar with the DISC system, if you're talking to a high D, I don't think you could stay in their house two hours. If you're talking to a high C, uh, try and do it in less. You know, when, when, when someone says, well, do you do a one-step or a two-step listing appointment? To me, the question shows someone hasn't been on enough appointments or if it's an instructor telling people how to do it, I go, yeah, 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 I'm real charmed. Here's the problem. If you're talking to a D, if, the, if, you're, if your seller is a D, you can do all appointments in one step. They don't want to keep talking to you. But if you have a high C who's like a real detail type person, you're not going to take the listing in very many cases on your first appointment. They're going to want to sleep on it and come you, call you the next day going, come on back. And to sit there using closing techniques to avoid that, I think is asinine. Just go with it. Like, it just it's part of the deal. So how long does an appointment take? Some appointments will take three hours. Some appointments take 10 minutes. I know if we have to allow drive time and we have to allow an average of a couple of hours for an appointment if we have some, because if we don't know what personality type until we get there, it might be a while. If somebody has a jillion questions, the first-time home seller, I don't want them to feel rushed or uh, pressured. Uh, I don't see what the upside is of that. How do you compensate the listing specialist? They get 20% of the uh, listing commission. They get, uh, so if we of the listing side, so let's pretend we had a $3,000 commission on the listing side. Uh, the lister would get 20% of that or uh, $600. My, my top guy, just to put this in perspective, my top guy in 2006, my top listing specialist, made just under 300000 his share. And, and his expenses would have been his board dues and his gas and dry cleaning. Now, that's not this last year and in the, couple, the last couple of years with our market, that hasn't been the deal. But I'm just putting this in perspective. So, Because of the volume, the 20% adds up? Yep. We haven't talked about it yet, but I know you have a flexible fee schedule. Mm-hmm. How does the 20% adjust when you do an in-house transaction? It adjusts just like you would think. And if someone wants to see my fee schedule, they can go to nohasslelisting.com and just click on the seller side. And my commission schedule is right there online. has been for years. It goes 6, 4, 1, or 0. So most of our deals are going to be at 6% because most of them are going to have a co-broke. So we're paying out the 3 but in the event that it's a 4%, we just, whatever the listing side was, we're going to, including if it was a 1% deal, which are now starting to come back again, because our market's half traditional sellers again, so we're starting to see those. Then the listing agent would get just that percent. They would get 20% of the 1%. That's not much money, but that's not, we're not doing that many of those, so 
that's almost at the level of taking one for the team because it's hardly a that, that wouldn't have been what they wanted to do, but it just works out that way sometimes. In the situation where it's in-house and it's 4%, are you splitting that fee 50-50 between your buyer agent and your listing agent? No. Uh, the, the lister would still get 20% of the 3%. My buyer agents were in a 50-50 split, but if they sell one of our listings, they're getting 1%. The buyer agent's getting 1%. It's because I'm, I'm actually making the same amount of money. So we're splitting. If I do a 4% deal, the buyer agent gets 1% where if they were doing selling someone else's listing that was 3%. But in that case, they're, only, they're usually only showing one house. So it works out for them too. So your buyer agent will take a lesser fee overall when it's an in-house transaction and your listing agent is basically receiving the same amount as they would have if it were sold to another agent. Yes, that's correct. That hasn't been a problem to disincentivize your buyer agent for selling the home? No, no, we've never had a problem with it. In fact, if I had someone working for me where I thought it was a problem, I'd probably not want them working for me. And I, and I mean that quite literally. There's two hats that anybody who works for me in sales has to wear. One would be the individual post hat, and the other one would be the group member hat. And that's why I would never, ever, ever hire a listing specialist. I would only take someone who was a proven, trustworthy, uh, see, it's not like I'm looking for a closer as my listing specialist, but someone who I go, I trust them. I know they're honest. I know they are part of the group. And that's the only person I ever want taking listings for me. As opposed to, am I looking for a closing technique? Not, not at all. I'm looking for someone who's honest, forthright. If somebody asks them a question, they'll answer the question that was actually asked. They don't. Uh, doesn't mean they're not salespeople, but I'm not looking for some kind of a. We're going to talk somebody into something. Since so I already have a deal that says my client can cancel any time they want to. Like if they're not happy, fire me. Well, if you're going to run a program like that, I don't know what the advantage would be to talk someone into something that didn't make complete sense for them, only to have them discover it. You, you mean you'd just be wasting your own time anyway. But someone who wasn't a group member wouldn't see it that way. So that's why I wouldn't want that kind of person working for me. What percentage of your transactions are you double-ending and in, in this 4% issue even comes up? I don't know that I could answer your question. It changes based on market conditions. I haven't tabulated it. I mean, my buyer agents, I have five of them, would love to sell my listings uh, every time if they could. Uh, I mean, we're not having some disincentive in doing it. In fact, quite the opposite. Because they know how the transaction is going to get handled uh, all the way around. So I, I don't have a, we don't have a barrier to it. But if you said, what's the actual number? I don't know if I know. I don't think I know the answer to your question. Not that I won't tell you. I don't think I can tell you. <laughs> Let's stick on listings here for a couple more minutes. Why do sellers hire you? Well, sellers hire me for the same reason they hire any listing person. And that would be they believe that we can get them the most money in the least time with the least amount of aggravation. Uh, that's what sellers actually want. The seller's hoping to get the highest net possible. Like, you know, in, in certain markets, when uh, well, for example, like late 2005, early 2006, when the discount companies 
uh, got a bigger toehold than they ever had in history because the uh, an overheated seller's market that ran longer than one ever had in history. And you found discount companies. Well, when you had agents becoming a commodity, see, for the last five, six years, agents have not been much of a commodity because if you're talking about a seller, it wasn't like, well, anyone can do they, they In fact, the discount companies pretty much went out of business, most of them, just because it wasn't perceived by the public. This has nothing to do with whether it's true or not. It just wasn't perceived by the public that they'll be able to get the, the job done the same way. So anytime you have someone, whether it's an area specialist, someone who I specialize in this area, well, people hire them because they, there's this perception, true or not, that this is the person who knows the area best. That doesn't even happen to necessarily be a fact. It's just what the person, the public believes. So they have the perception that you are the best agent in the area? Uh, yeah, I think that's true. But most people hire someone they know. Like if, if, if just being well-known uh, was the main requirement to get business, I would have all the business in Phoenix. <laughs> and I don't, I promise. <laughs> so the bulk of the business I'm not getting isn't where I'm losing it out to uh, some amazing agent. It's just some random person they happen to know. And that's how it usually works. How you, you the business you're usually not getting is how it, it, you're, you're losing it to some person that they know. Do you send out a pre-listing package before your interview? We did. Again, if I for years, now this 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 these last few years have just sort of changed everything. But yes, my pre-listing package is also online, and you can they can download it. It's I won't remember. It's called my information packet, uh, and it, that's online, and they can see it there. But for if I tell you up until the market went haywire. In 2007, we sent a pre-listing package on, in almost every instance. And if they called and we were going out that day, we took it with us and gave it to them when we got to the house. Once 2007 hit, you stopped doing that? The subprime meltdown, August of 2007, the market collapsed. And so you send a pre-listing package, it wouldn't matter what you were doing. And, and you couldn't even guess the price of a house in my area back then. So if would, what, what did we do? I don't know that it would matter to say, here's what we did then. We, we were losing money rapidly is what we were doing. How did you survive that? I fortunately had made enough money prior to that that we, we lost that first year just because our overhead so high. We lost, well, I would say in 2008, my net loss would have been right at 400000 Wow. That, that's a lot of money to pay to get to have an office. <laughs> <laughs> you go, like, nice business. Oh, it's that's, great. That's a house. <laughs> yeah, 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 there you go. <laughs> so, so how did you adapt? What did you do when the market changed so dramatically? I uh, finally went into short sales. And uh, with, we have a huge short sale op. We did 161, I think, last year closed and uh, we've done hundreds of short sales uh, it, it was it was a survival thing but that market's changing already the market is changing away from short sales already in my area 
and I believe will nationally, too. I mean, Phoenix is sort of leading the parade on that, but nevertheless, REOs, the REO inventory is essentially gone. Uh, there's just a tiny, tiny bit. It's less than 20% of our market now. And uh, as it continues to dwindle, like short sales have become more and more prominent. And, but, but that's changing as well. So you see your market moving back to a traditional market. It already has. It has, it's not, not finalized yet, but it, it already is moving. Over half the sales now are traditional sellers. Russell, where is your market? Where are you working? Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona. Describe your current real estate market. It would be slightly over half. It's rebounded uh, slightly over half. Our traditional sellers, uh, prices are rising at a faster rate than they ever have in history. Last month, the average price per square foot went up about 7%. That's uh, unprecedented. And uh, median prices, by the way, if uh, this is an important little point, median prices are a horrifically awful, stupid method of attempting to track short-term price movement. Economists don't know this, apparently, because they keep trying to forward uh, this, but you cannot ever accurately track short-term price movement by looking at median prices moving. It would never give you an accurate number. It tells you what's selling, not how much it's selling for. Uh, so its average price per square foot would be the correct thing if you're trying to forecast what's happening. And what's been happening in our market is that's just been moving up at a clip that's just unprecedented in terms of the speed. Is that because the market fell so dramatically? Well, our market's still underpriced, but it's really because you'll see this all across the country. There's a shortage of inventory. Prices are regulated by supply and demand, and there's a shortage of inventory. And people go, well, how come there's a shortage of inventory? Well, I can tell you, again, speaking just for Phoenix, in 2006, we had slightly over 400 home builders here in the Valley. By mid-2008, that number was down to less than 20. Now, so you get, and by the time the uh, merry-go-round ride stopped in uh, fourth quarter of 07, uh, we had an inventory overhang of 55,000 homes that no one ever needed. There was no economic reason to have ever built any of them. It was so investors could buy them to resell them to other investors. But the fact of the matter is that all that stuff's gone. The foreclosures, uh, we've had 230,000 foreclosures here in the Valley. The, it's Our market's recovered. Uh, delinquent loans are now down, I know, like, like right at six, between 6 and 7%. There are the problems practically fixed here. Do you think that that was because people moved away and then came back? Are you getting an influx of people and employment? What's been the turnaround? I don't know that I could answer that question. I think that I, because I, I don't really try to gauge uh, what's going, I, I'm like studying the whole economy to see what's going to happen with housing. I, I know I'm just looking at the supply-demand of housing. Here, uh, I'm real clear on we have a severe shortage of inventory. It's never been this low, and prices have never been going up that fast. If someone says, well, does this tell me that all industries are going to be doing real well? No, it doesn't tell me that. It tells me what's happening with housing. 
I don't know that I can draw some inference from this to go, well, let me say what this means. When I hear people go, there's a shadow inventory, I go, no, there isn't. There most certainly isn't here. There absolutely isn't here. I don't believe there's one anywhere. I wish there was. If there was, and they just dumped it all on our market right away, I don't think it'd take more than a week or two for us to absorb every last one of them. So if there were a shadow inventory, I think it'd be delightful release it. The theory that the banks are working together to hold properties back so they can sell them later when they're going to be worth more, or they're doing this to avoid flooding the market as though they knew how to manage anything, it, it's such an absurd concept that they, that they run things efficiently, or they do things that would even be in their own self-interest. But no, there, there's, we've counted them here. I mean, you get companies like Realty track that the stuff they spew out and call data, if I just characterized it as worthless tripe, and if they wanted to sue me, I'd go, please do. I'm comfortable with that because the stuff they print, the stuff they say, the stuff they churn out, it's not simply worthless. Worthless implies it has zero value. I consider that stuff has a hideous negative value because. It's simply false information. It, it is not accurate. They do not know how to count. Uh, they count odd things, and they have no concept of what they're even talking about. So uh, I couldn't, you couldn't use that data. Case-Shiller, which is the most respected national index, is a minimum of four months out of date the day it's published. So, and it's usually five months in arrears. Well, in a local market, that's worthless. If you want to know where you were, Case Shirley would be accurate. But if you want to know where you're going, you can't use it. You can't use it because local markets turn on a dime. You're in the middle of your local market. You're saying you're seeing this uptick. Is it across all price ranges? All except the top. The exceptions to it on price rising is, in our market, is the real high end still has lots of inventory. Like if you want to buy a house for two or three million, you can, you know, you want to think it over. It's, I mean, I'm not making a joke. You could look at it and go. I'll come back in a few days. I'm going to look at some more. You could do that if you're buying a house for a couple of million. If you're trying to buy a house for a couple of hundred thousand, it'll have, if it's a decent property, it'll have multiple offers instantaneously. Now, the only other area that didn't have the wild price swings is the 55-plus communities. The, again, there, you, we, don't have, we didn't have the prices shoot way down, and we didn't have, they're not rising now because there's no shortage of inventory in those 55-plus communities. In your market, do you believe you have a niche or a specialization? Not really. We're not a luxury agent. I mean, I sell houses for a million plus, but there's luxury agents that their average price, a true luxury agent in our market would have an average price of a million or more. And I'm certainly not, and that's not what we do. We, we work valley-wide. Uh, we list houses for 50,000, we list houses routinely for 500,000, and we do, I mean, literally, day in, day out. So we might have inventory brought in any random day, 150, 50, 250, 350, 700,000, we're all across the boards, so I don't have a part of town or a type of product that we, like, this is our home, our home is the market. Could you tell us the different ways that you're generating leads and business? Well, my number one method, and this has been true for 20 years, is uh, radio and TV ads. That's probably 80% of our business. 
right there. We get obviously repeat and referral. We do, I don't know, maybe 70, 80 deals a year from repeat and referral. It might even be closer to 100 now. I haven't counted it recently. Last time I counted it was around, I think it was 75, 80, I can't remember exactly, but it would be normal for us to do from repeat and referral, uh, maybe 80 deals a year, something like that. So I'm guessing, I'm guessing now that number is probably closer to 100 just as, as we've grown, but I, I don't actually know, but it'd be somewhere like that. Um, and, you know, there's some agents that can live off repeat and referral, but 100 deals a year isn't enough business for us to live off of. Uh, it's too big an operation. But if you wanted, like, could you do 100 deals a year strictly off repeat and referral? My answer is absolutely. And for someone who has a low enough overhead or that's just as high as they care to go, that would actually be a business right there. But for us, it's, it's the bulk of it is radio and television. I do have a new, some papers we send out, like a geographic thing near the office, and that's we send out about 44,000 uh, copies, and uh, we do get business off that. I couldn't tell you what percentage of our business it is because for the last three, four years, all I've really used it for is to bring in people for our short sale seminars which we, we wound up in the short sale business because the other business had gone away. <laughs> Let's go into each of those in a little more detail. Let's start out with the radio ads. We were the first uh, successful radio ad in the country. I will say that I think pretty much any agent anywhere in the country who's running a successful radio ad has copied mine with or without my permission but either way, they've patterned it after mine. I, when I started, uh, I have a background in radio. I used to, back in the early 70s, function pretty much like a small ad agency where I would write and produce radio commercials. When I finally decided to attempt, after 12 years in the business, to put the two together, my real estate background and my radio commercial background, I made a deal with a radio station where I produced for them new each week comedy that they could run on their channel in exchange for 10 free ads. Now, here, here's what's funny. It took me a year to get the phone to ring. Not, not to do a deal, by the way, to get the phone to ring just, just once. I was convinced they weren't running my ad. I thought they were lying to me. Uh, I thought they were tricking me and not running the ad. I would sometimes go to the station and talk to the on-air person. Have you ever actually run? I just ran one. I mean, they weren't going to fib something to me. And the truth of the matter was, every radio ad that anyone had ever used, I would go out of my way to get a copy of it, and I would just put my name where their name was, thinking I'm going to, since their ad must have been successful if they kept doing it. Well, that was my mistake. It had never been successful. What had actually had happened is the radio stations would talk people into, real estate agents, into you have to advertise for at least 90 days to see make it work. Actually, I found, uh, after I got to doing it and, and had to branch out from more than one station, I found actually I could test a station in one week. Because either you have bad copy or you have a bad station, and if you've already tested the copy, then I knew the only variable was the station. Since I knew my copy worked, it took me a long time. It took us a year 
of trial and error to perfect that copy. It, it was just it was bewildering to me because every single thing I ever dreamed would work, uh, it didn't. <laughs> and it just didn't. And I couldn't believe it. But what we have on the air today is a variation of what we ran roughly 20-some years ago. It's the same ad. We just update it from time to time to keep it current. But it's, the, it's, it's essentially the same ad. And I found uh, that changing that ad uh, was just a stupid thing to do. It's, I go back to what Jack Benny said. It's much easier to get a new audience than a new act. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. I've actually been able to cue a radio ad up. Let's listen to it for a minute, and then you and I can chat about it. Here we go. Homes are selling, and so are we. In fact, twice as fast as the average agent. I'm Russell Shaw with Realty One Group. We help more home sellers sell than any other agent, and most at full price or more. In fact, it takes 71 ordinary agents to sell the number we sell. I'm not bragging. I'm applying for a job. I want to be your realtor. And if you're not happy, fire me. Mind you, I think you'll be happy because my no-hassle listing has flexible commissions, sell it yourself and pay nothing cancel any time found your own buyer and just need help we can take it from contract to close for a free information package call 957-7777 for 34 years selling homes is what we do best can't make your house payment don't foreclose get up to three thousand dollars to do a short sale attend our free short sale seminar valleywide 602-957-7777 or nohasslelisting.com thank you that's a fantastic ad. Well, um, Wendy wrote it. So uh, Wendy Shaw gets credit for writing the ad, tweaking the ad, keeping the ad current. And Wendy is? Wendy and I were married in 1982. We're uh, actually splitting up, but she still wrote that ad, and we still work together in the business. And she gets credit for the quality of the ad. She's uh, the executive producer of the ad when we go into the studio. Like... You don't want to ever rely on someone in the studio to tell you that ad is good enough or that ad isn't good enough because what they're going to be looking for is are you popping your peas, how are your levels, that, that kind of thing. And uh, I, I've seen so many times over the years where someone would send me their ad copy, I would tweak it for them, tell them, no, don't write this, do this, do it this way, don't say it that way, say it this way. And they would take ad copy that I knew would work, go into the studio, record a spot, and it would not work. And then I would say, please send me a copy of the ad. I remember one uh, really, really nice lady, if you ever met her, her name was Mary Charters with Keller Williams out of Maryland. And she did the ad, and they spent, Joe and Mary spent $50,000 on uh, TV ads. Never got a call. And I said, uh, send me a copy of the ad. I, I, I saw, I mean, I personally approved that. I, I literally looked at her ad copy, I rewrote it, and I sent it back to him. So I thought, that this shouldn't be happening. Well, if you saw the ad, you'd see why it was happening. Lighting was perfect. The camera angles were perfect. 
Mary, if you ever met her, you would find Mary was this energetic, instantly likable, affable, charming person. In the TV ad, if Mary had been doing a professional actor's version of a zombie, it would look just perfect. And I'm not making it, I mean, I'm, I mean literally. It was just this uh, stiff, uh, staring straight ahead like a deer in the headlights, and, and half the ad, half the point of the ad is you want to come across to someone they can like and trust. So not only does the copy have to be just right, the delivery has to be just right. And if the delivery's not just right, and so you're not going to get someone from a radio or TV station to keep sending it back again and again and again to have it re-edited, and I don't like this look, and I don't like that, and this doesn't look just right, uh, that's got to come from someone who doesn't work there at the station because it's just more work to them. It'll come across, I mean, what you can count on from them will be sort of a stable horse mentality on, yep, this is fine, you should be good to go and uh, not good to go. When I saw the ad, I, I, I remember calling him back. I, I can tell you what's wrong. It looks like hell. The delivery's terrible. And, and they, the guy, he says to me, but they told me it was fine. Well, of course. What are, they, what are they judging? What are they judging? They're going, the lighting was perfect. The lighting was perfect. She's in the frame exactly. They don't know what a good ad's supposed to look like. If they did, they wouldn't be working behind a camera. I'm not making fun of them. I'm just going. This is it's not. That's not their area of expertise. That's the kind of stuff that. Uh, so if you want to get it right, you, you have to have someone who knows what your good look is. And I'm your 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 how you, how 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 would you sound if you were do, if you sounded just right if you sounded natural? Because if it has a phony sound, and and because people if they're not used to doing uh, recording, the truth of the matter is they may not be comfortable in a studio. And sometimes you can talk, be talking to someone, shove a microphone in front of them, all of a sudden they, they, just, they, they freeze up. So if they're stilted, if the delivery is stilted, it's, the, the, the commercial isn't going to, it's not going to play well. Or they're tired after multiple takes. Yeah, and, and I've had people write me and say, uh, will you help me with my commercial? I tell them what to do. I tell them exactly what to do. I had one recently. I thought, okay, waste your money. I'm not going to debate with you. Uh, I told him, do not use music. Do not use a music bed. So he sends, I say, send me a sample of it. He sends it to me. And I'm doing this for free, you understand. And he sends it to me and says he's real busy. Uh, I said, well, it has music. You don't want music. And he goes, yeah, but I'm real busy now, so I have time to recut it. I thought, I'm done talking to him. This isn't something where I'm going to debate with the guy, like, don't, don't do it. It's, if he wants to waste his money, I can tell you, I, this isn't something, it's not like a science fair project. Uh, when I say to someone, do not advertise on a sports station, they go, why? I don't know why. I can just tell you it doesn't work. <laughs> you say, I can, would, would I run an ad, would I run one of my ads on a sports station? Absolutely not, never. If you say, why, why not? I don't know why not. I just know it doesn't work. Um, I've tried it. We, we've tried everything, and we know what doesn't work because we did it. It doesn't work. We only run on news talk. Why is that better? I guess because, and it's like I only run the TV ads on the news. No, People do not TiVo the news to watch later. So whatever they have watching then, you get it then. 
and why no music? Because on talk stations, when the announcers are talking, you actually hear them talking. So I want it to seem like editorial content of the stations. What are the elements to the ad we just listened to? You've developed over many years. Why is it successful? You've mentioned some of these big picture items. Are there items inside the ad that you found hot buttons that people respond to? Yes. Cancel anytime. Sell it yourself while listed. I'm not bragging. I'm applying for a job. I took that out one time because it was getting old. And what I found is took it out, and my phone started ringing late at night. You egotistical son of a bitch. They'd hang up. And you go, why would people do that? I don't know. Maybe they like to drink, and when they're drinking, I, it, but what I know is I was getting those calls. And you weren't before. We weren't before. So you say, well, isn't that silly? Well, of course it's silly, but it doesn't matter. So if you're going to make the statements, I put in, I'm not bragging, I'm applying for a job. Of course I'm bragging, but apparently it's okay if I say I'm not bragging. You mentioned, is it 71 times the average agent? Yeah, my real number is over 100. I just use the number 71 currently because it sounds more believable like we calculated it. That it, The truth is the average agent uh, doesn't even sell six houses a year right now. If you took the total number of agents, you could do the same thing nationally. If you took the total number of um, MLS members and then you take the total number of houses being sold and divide the little number into the big number, you get the average number of houses they're selling. You take a company like back when the market was good, for example, and normal, a company like Cowell Banker, their agents average like 11 deals a year currently. Oh, realty executives here in town, their agents are averaging currently 11 deals a year. This is a company whose name used to equal success, and they're currently averaging 11 deals a year per agent. So that, that'll that give you an idea. So if you took a company like Keller Williams, I think their number average number of deals per agent right now is around six, something like that. So if you if you get the idea, so could I claim, I could claim I'm selling more than 100 agents, but... I don't want to make a claim that sounds outrageous. So take something that's more believable. That's resonating with the people listening and you're getting more calls. Well, yes. I mean, we're at, it absolutely resonates. For anyone who's going to do any kind of marketing, if you're going to spend money on marketing, the book you want to read is The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing by Al Rees and Jack Trout. That's Jack Trout, T-R-O-U-T, and Al Rees, R-I-E-S. I think that's the most important book on marketing ever written, period. And it's easy to read. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. It's To me, it just dwarfs other books on the subject of marketing. So if you're going to spend money, I'm not talking about guerrilla marketing. I'm talking about where you're going to see people talk about, well, they say, well, everything's marketing. Everything is not marketing. Uh, if you are eating dinner, you're not marketing. You're eating dinner. There's two ways to get business. Just two. There's exactly two ways to get business, prospecting or marketing. If you are doing marketing, you're doing something to get them to reach toward you. And if you're doing prospecting, you're doing something to reach to them. That's it. So if you're getting business, you're doing one of the two. You're either prospecting or you're marketing. We have a marketing-based business. For example, some B people have a prospecting-based business. A prospecting-based business has advantages over a marketing-based business in that when the market changes, you can 
almost instantaneously change your message. You find out what you were doing doesn't work because you're standing right there and it's not working. It takes much longer and it's considerably more expensive to change your message marketing because it takes longer to get the feedback. It would be like if you were standing in a comedy club telling jokes and you said something that's not funny, at least to that audience. Well, you can see it's not because they're not laughing. They're right there, not laughing. But now imagine you're doing a radio show. Well, you just said something that's not funny. You think it's funny, but they don't think it's funny. Well, how do you know? You don't know. That's what, that's, it's harder. It, that's, it's, it's harder to connect unless you've tested that material. So to find out what a current valid message is, is something that we're constantly, uh, like I make it a point to talk to people on the phone, like my, my clients. Like I, I personally take incoming seller calls at a couple times a month just so I'm finding out when the public perception is changing so that we don't have some stuck idea because what most people do, they make the mistake, if they don't, they don't survey the public, they survey themselves. Like, here's what I think is important. It doesn't matter what I think is important. It's what do they think is important. Do they think this is valuable? Like the stations I advertise on, I don't listen to them. These aren't my favorite stations. I'm not trying to get me to call me. I'm not trying to get me to call. I, I already have my business. I'm not trying to get my friends to call me. I already have their business. I'm trying to get strangers to call me. Who writes your ads? Wendy. So you're doing that in-house? Yeah, we do it in-house. I wouldn't waste 10 cents on an ad agency to write it. Who's performing the ads? Sounds like you are. That's me. Have you ever had anyone else do it? No. It's always been you. Me. I'm not saying you couldn't use someone else. Like if the person isn't going to do well on camera or isn't going to do well on a voice, I would tell them like if they're not going to do a comfortable job, they would be better off to get some like a celebrity endorsement type thing. You know, like somebody, one of those, I don't know, Rush Limbaugh or the some person at the station who's well-known. They'd be better off to just pay them a couple of bucks and, and have them do it so that they would have that comfortable read. That That's really important. Have you tried any of those type of formats where you're talking to a local DJ? No, it's, it's not anything I've ever wanted to do, but I have a background in radio. So... And I have a background in, and I've studied marketing so extensively, I, I think that I get more bang for the buck and more oomph by, by me personally doing them. You're dropping a lot of hot points into a very short period of time. You're talking for 60 seconds, and I have maybe nine or ten points that you hit. Did you read those all at one time, or did you read them and edit them together so you could get them into a tight little bit of time? Both. Again... I'm going to tell you, if you're doing radio ads and you start, do not listen to the people at the station. You do a cold read. That means no music. And they'll tell you that you have to use music. Well, then run your ads on a different station. Don't do it. The other thing is don't run 30-second spots. Uh, run 60s. On TV, you go 30. On radio, you use 60s. You only use 60s. If you're an unknown commodity, you have to use 60s. 30 is not going to be enough time for you to get your message out. 
the message is because you have to say your name, you have to say your company name, and you have to say your phone number at least twice. That's about 20 seconds, by the way. And the message, the whole point of it is, is I'm going, if you need to sell your house, we're the ones you want to hire. That is the message. And we have benefits that ordinary agents don't give you. But when I was a new agent, not new, when I was a new lister, and I was going in to a neighborhood, and I'm a new, I'm, I'm a relatively new lister at the time I was working softcore FISBOs, and I was up against agents who were giants. I mean, they dwarfed what I was doing. I can say I've passed every one of them now, but at the time I hadn't passed those people. Uh, they were all quite a bit bigger than me. They were established agents. Well, the first thing I would do when I would go into an area is I would ask the people, I say, you're probably wondering why you should hire me. Well, what are they going to say? No, we're not wondering that. If I was in the house, they'd go, yeah. And i say, well, let me take that up, as though they've asked me the question. <laughs> and I'd say, it depends on who you're comparing me to. If you're comparing me to an ordinary agent, there's quite a few significant reasons you'd want to hire me. But if you were comparing me, and then I would list off the top agents who worked that neighborhood. Like if I was out in Chandler, I'd go, and if you're talking about Bill Ryan or Mike Mendoza or Paul Pastore, these were all friends of mine, by the way, but these were the top agents in that part of the valley. I mean, unquestionably, and there wouldn't be a seller I was saying this to who wouldn't have known their name. If you're talking about one of those agents, well, no, that's different. They're great agents. So if you hire any one of us, you're getting a great agent. Now, that was right out of the 22 immutable laws of marketing. It's the concept of positioning, and I'm positioning myself in a line. I wasn't positioning myself as against these guys. I was aligning myself like I'm like them. The truth of the matter was, at that time, I wanted to be like them. <laughs> so it's a matter of like how you're going to be thought of, and you get to pick it. You can causatively decide, here's how I'm going to align myself. And that's what I was doing. So I started the concept then of if you were talking about an ordinary agent, it was a difference, and I would just align myself with successful agents. How frequently do you try to play the ad? Well, the question is a bad question. Uh, it's not a matter of how frequently you'd play the ad. It's a matter of how much money are you going to spend. Like when I started, like you don't, you don't want to try to buy cheap ads. Like people go, well, I can get on this station, I can get 60 ads for X number of dollars, as though this is a meaningful statement. It's a gibberish statement. Or I can get, uh, they'll only charge me $400 to run the ad 25 times, as though this means something. Uh, it means nothing. Uh, you could be paying $500 for a radio commercial that ran in morning drive time. You could be paying $500, and it's a bargain. You could have some other spot that is $25 on a similar station or on the same station uh, that runs at 3 in the morning and isn't worth $25. So what you're really looking at is uh, what's something called cost per point or cost per person reached. That's the important number. And so when I started, I was on the biggest station in town, the news station, News Talk, and I could only afford three commercials a week. I ran them all on Wednesday. Uh, one in morning drive, one in midday, and one in afternoon drive. So once a week, 
I was on the station. The public perception was, since most people pay little attention to things, is I was there every day. But I could only afford, I mean, at that time, I mean, now if I said we're on pretty much other than this, that this is an election year, so you get bumped on TV stations big time just based on the demand because we're, we're on an annual contract and I'm not going to pay uh, the crazy rates that we'd have to pay to this time of year, like between now and November. We get half, about half of our TV spots are just getting kicked back. They just literally send our check back and go, we, we can't run the spots. We can't honor the price we gave you. But normally speaking, I would say we're on every network station every day, somewhere, all the time. And I'm on, on all the radio stations we use every day. We, we're, my, my media budget, I mean, if we spend about 400000 a year on television, probably about 200,000 on radio and about 200,000 on the mailing. So we we spend right at 800,000 a year uh, on marketing. So it's it's a lot of money, but it's a, again, it's a big business. It sounded like there are certain times of the day that you want your ad to appear. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. And what times are those? Well, if we're paying for the spot, now if they want to comp some stuff, if they so we just like you and we want to give you some free commercials, they can run me damn time they want. But if, if I'm going to pay for them, I don't want any commercials on certain holidays. Like, I'm not going to run a paid spot on Mother's Day. Father's Day is fine. If you say, why is that true? My answer is, I don't know, but it's true. Like, I didn't find Father's Day to be a bad day to run an ad. I found Mother's Day or days like Easter. So I'm just making, telling you, these are just days I don't run paid commercials. I don't run the last two weeks of the year, and I don't want to run a bunch of stuff competing with Thanksgiving as people are getting ready for it. I don't want to run them on Valentine's Day. I don't want to run them on St. Patrick's Day. So you take these days that people, their lives are disrupted by something. I don't want to run a spot. Now, I want my spots, if I'm, that, that, are, that matter to me, to run between 5.30 a.m. and around 8 or 9 a.m. for morning. Middays, I don't care, just run them in the midday time. In the afternoon drive time, I want them to run, preferably before 7 o'clock. I'm not interested in reaching the people listening to radio at 11 o'clock at night, and I'm certainly not trying to reach the people who are listening to radio at 3 in the morning. But... If the station wants to give those to me, like we, you know, you can be on a contract and they go, we're just going to give you a bunch of extra spots, and we'll go, fine. I'm never going to go, no, don't, I, don't, I don't want them. I don't do it. But we don't want to pay for them if it's, if it's not the times that we actually do them. Are there better days of the week? Well, maybe. Yes and no. You know, on some stations, it's going to depend on the format of the station. You would find that on certain stations later in the week, you're competing with uh, car dealerships, you're competing with restaurants, nightclubs, that kind of thing. So Thursday, Friday, it's it, sometimes the stations have less inventory. Radio commercials are not sold on the basis of ratings as much as they are on demand. This is the same with television. Like, big stations don't even bother with a rate card anymore. They, they haven't, I mean, I, we haven't, I haven't seen a rate card from a company we've done business with in the last 20 years. They don't even use them. They just, it's whatever the traffic will bear. So when they have a higher demand for something, they'll charge more for it. 
So is it a big advantage to me to be competing, say, on a Friday with a nightclub? Not really. I don't get a bigger kick out of it. So the nightclub really won't want to run ads on Monday. I'm fine with Monday. Do you understand what I'm saying here? So I want to look at where can I get the best deal on the cost per point. And you found that to be early in the week? Yes, yes. Normally speaking, the answer to that is yes. But it's a little more complex than we'd probably be able to cover. But I would say you're not, there's not some disadvantage. Like I don't need to compete. Like running into the weekend doesn't help me. Do you advertise on the weekend? Well, seldom. We seldom do. You'd like to keep it during the weekday? Yes, yes. How often do you change or modify your ad? Probably not often enough would be the correct first answer because there's a certain pain in the ass to doing it. There's a certain, well, it seems to be working fine. But the problem is the ad has to always reflect the public's perception of the market. For example, in 2006, here, let me give you a different. In 2008 or 2009, my ad said, I can sell your house in spite of the market. Running an ad like that in 2006 would have been crazy. A busboy could sell their house. Russell, what's the difference between doing a radio ad and a TV ad? Well, TV is considerably more expensive. TV requires a lot more work, a lot more production values than radio. If you need to redo the ad or it's not quite right, there's, I mean, if, if anyone's listening, I would say start with radio. Do not start with television. I have people routinely ignore that, and I go, oh, well, but I would tell you radio's easier to do, easier to get going, easier to test, and uh, I just think it's easier all the way around. So in anyone that's thinking of that, I would tell them absolutely start with radio. Don't start with television because it's just so much faster. When you do move to television, are you just taking the successful radio ad and adapting it to television? Sort of, uh, but that's where it gets trickier because you only have half the time. Like when I say you have half the time, let me think of a different way to say this. Let me equate it to cost of the ad. A 60-second spot on television cost exactly twice as much as a 30-second spot. So you would you would have to spend twice as much money to run 60s on television. Television is a more powerful medium, but you don't have the same time for your ad copy, the, the, certainly the verbal part. You have the advantage of the visual if you're going to use it properly. Now, go to radio. Radio, a 60-second spot, does not cost twice as much as a 30-second spot. They'll still try to sell you 30s. They'll try to sell you 15s because they sell them for proportionately more. But the truth of the matter is you don't have time to get your message out in a 30-second one. So you have to cut your ad in half, and you have to take half of it and put it on the screen. That doesn't no longer come out of your voice. And uh, it's just trickier. Like, is your smile, does it look sincere? If you're doing a radio commercial, your smile does not have to look sincere the entire time. If at the very end you have a funny look on your face when you're doing a radio spot, it doesn't matter. On a TV spot, it matters. So you might have to redo the whole spot. or you, it's. It, I don't know. I, I would just tell anyone, uh, if you're going to do it, start with radio. It's easier to test it. 
I found that television, it took quite a bit longer from the time we started running ads on a station, since I run on the news, to get it to work, to t- see if it was working well. Where telev- radio, I can test an ad, I mean, I can test a station and just res- spend a thousand bucks in one week and go, yeah, I, it's a crappy station, I can skip it. Or it's a wonderful station, we're going to continue with it. If you were to spend a thousand dollars on radio advertising, how many ads does that buy you? It's the wrong question. You go back to that cost per point. You don't. You're not buying a number of ads. You're buying a number of ears. You want to get away from how many spots do you get for a thousand dollars? It depends on the station. So if you're going to do this, the first thing be like let's let's pretend you're going to do television, and they say what about cable TV? And I go, yep, if you want to be thought of as a local jerk-off, you go right ahead and do cable. <laughs> if you want to be perceived as a giant, this is, the, this is the deal, go network television. Go on network stations. Now let's go back to radio. So if you're going to run, if you, if you say, what is, the, what is the most successful action? The answer would be run an ad on a station that is the station, if something horrific happened, everyone would tune to in your area. Now, that station, by the way, happens to have the highest advertising rates of any station around. So how many spots do you get? It doesn't matter how many spots you get because you're buying on a, you're getting that giant station that has that giant audience. So I'm not trying to buy a high number of commercials, I'm trying to buy a high number of ears. So like when I started, again, I was on three times a week. I could afford three commercials a week. Like my $1,000 when I started was three commercials a week. I ran them all on Wednesday. I just don't want to run it all in one spot because if people happen to tune out for some reason, now I've just lost them all. Sometimes you can go the other direction. You got real lucky. You, you happen to pick a time. But if you were running a couple, three a day, you should be fine. If somebody were just trying to start this up, how would they test radio station for that week? What, what's their objective? Are they trying to get in front of people during a certain time frame, a certain number of people, a certain frequency? I mean, they don't just want to put one ad. It's limited by your budget. You don't want to run one ad. You don't want to run one ad. You do need frequency of some kind. Yeah, but you're not going to do one run ad and go, it didn't work or it worked. It, that's just like if someone says, I have a budget of $300 a week, what station should I be on? I, let me answer it real quickly. None. Don't go on a station. Don't even think of going on a station. Take the money and buy, buy lunch for your friends and ask for referrals. Do not consider it. In a major market, if you're not prepared to spend, for starters, a couple thousand dollars a month, for starters, don't do it. It's just not something for you to do. And you need to be prepared to bankroll it for at least three months before you collect any money anyway. And that's if you weren't doing if you're doing short sales, make that number six months. So it's not for everyone, and it most certainly wouldn't be like if somebody goes, Well, how will I you'll know it's working by is the phone ringing. But you don't get paid right away from it. So I would absolutely tell someone, like, you have to get enough exposure to where it mattered that you did it, but still, I just couldn't overemphasize this. It's not the cost per commercial 
Like if they say these commercials cost four hundred dollars, that's is that good or bad? I don't know. You're, it's not. It's an incomplete question. Do you have a number you're trying to target a cost per ear or a cost per person? Yeah, I want to be at that cost. It's called CPP, cost per point. I want to be as close to a hundred bucks or less than I can that I can get. I don't want to be paying two hundred bucks a point. I won't pay two hundred dollars a point. At one hundred and eighty, I'm probably not going to buy the perm commercial. So I want to be like at a hundred and a quarter. I'm okay. I want to be it's the CPP, and I don't want to pay more. I want to be as close to a hundred bucks for that number as I can get, and that's the number that matters. Not and I'm not interested in stations that heavily favor women, like soft rock stations that have primarily female audiences. You'll get lots of calls with fewer people telling you to come on out to the house. Women like to shop. Men don't like to shop as much. So I want a station that has a predominant male audience. That's number one. Number two, I do not ever want to be on a station that tells me they have lots of home buyers. I'm not interested in home buyers or a young, hip audience. You want to avoid those stations like the plague. You're not looking for home buyers. All ads that advertise, if you're advertising on the radio, you're not a home builder, you're a real estate agent. You cannot ever advertise yourself to buyers. You can go ahead and try it. It won't matter. You'll waste all your money. Like all ads aimed at buyers are advertising houses. Buyers are not looking for an agent. They're looking for a house. They're willing to tolerate talking to an agent to get in the house. But they're not looking for an agent. There's some people go, oh, yes, they are. And I go, well, you go ahead and appeal to them. But I'm telling you, the broad public, they're not looking. So all, if all ads, if you're advertising yourself and your services, by definition, that ad is aimed at sellers. So any station that has an audience of people well under 40 you are advertising to the wrong people. In fact, I prefer 55-plus is their skewered audience. That's who I want to advertise to because that's who has houses to sell. So it's a different thing, but you're talking, it's the demographics. I mean, who, are we, who are we targeting? The answer is older people. The grayer, the better. I'm totally serious. If you want it to be a successful ad, if you're on television, for example, a real bargain deal is five o'clock, five a.m. news on a net, on a network station. You can get you can get TV spots, thirty second TV spots that run for one hundred and fifty bucks. That's a deal, and you can and the, and the people that sell the ads will tell you, well, yeah, but you want to be on the ten o'clock news too. No, I don't. Not at what you sell those commercials for. I don't ever want to bother with the ten o'clock news. It's a rip off. If you're an adver- if you're trying to reach thirty somethings, it's fabulous, but I don't care about reaching them. So I'm looking for the old. You say, well, the people I'm looking at, half of them already went to bed by then. You understand? So it's just a different thing. So I'm looking for an older audience, but you're looking at the cost per point, not the cost per commercial. So whether a TV commercial or a radio commercial cost 500 or $800 or $50, if somebody says, well, isn't $50 a good price? No, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's a terrible price. I don't know. I'd have to know what is the cost per point. What are the ratings? What, what size audience do they have at that time? So you, if you miss that one step, you could spend an awful lot of money and get no result that ever mattered because there wasn't much of an audience. When you say point, does that mean a percentage of the population? 
I don't actually know. Uh, it's it's a percent of the people listening in the radio, like the, the do all the it's called Arbitron. It's a rating service. It's a percent of the the market, like the share they have. But it's it, the number of points is per thousand people that they have. I think CPP is cost per thousand of people that they supposedly have watching or listening. Russell, we spend a lot of time on radio and TV, which is your expertise. I would like to hear a little bit about this seller seminar, and you combined it with a newspaper that you're mailing out. Well, they've been short sale seminars. So these are short sale seminars. Uh First of all, why do a seminar as opposed to a listing appointment? Well, that's an easy question to answer. And a matter of fact, if somebody wants to see the the data on the seminars, if they go to nohasslelisting.com, my main website, and just click on the tab that says short selling, it'll take you right to my short sale website, which will tell you what the seminars and how we promote them. And we do uh, email blasts out on those too. But the reason is there's a ton of people who are not willing to, they're not ready and they're not willing to list their house, but they're in the exploratory stage. And they are willing to come to a seminar where they can get their questions answered. And we do not have a sign up at the end. I mean, we don't try to enroll them or something. We just, we're literally giving them information. We're giving them information so that when they are ready, but we get people at the end that literally go, when, how can we sign up? When you just, we just tell them, just give us a call. Just give us a call whenever you're ready. We'll be here. It's, it's a real casual thing, but we, we spend about 90 minutes just literally covering their questions of what is a short sale, what are the potential liabilities, why you should do a short sale rather than foreclose, that kind of thing. How often do you put these short sale seminars on? A couple times a month. Where are they done? In my office. We have a, a large conference room, and uh, we, we do them there. How many people typically show up? Well, that's changing. The smallest one we had like was around four people. Uh, the biggest one was just under 40, which was a real tight squeeze in that room. But normally speaking, we have about 20 people there. Of the 20 people that show up, how many of those do you think end up signing up with you? Well, I would say most of them. We get people who have their house listed with other agents showing up. We were almost at the level of we're sort of perceived as like a public service uh, kind of thing we're doing. It's it, it's a different p- type of positioning. So uh, the bulk of them that come, I mean, we're that's our main, for short sales, that's been our main procurement line. Like the bulk of the people coming, uh, that, that is where we get listings from, is the people who come to the seminars. But some of them aren't even ready then. We wind up doing a one-on-one with them. In some cases, they have to. we send them to an attorney because they need legal advice. It depends on the circumstances. But it's been a very successful action we've been doing for quite some time now. The way you're promoting that, you mentioned is these newspapers you're mailing out. Well, in the new, we have it in our in our papers. We have it in our TV ad. We have it in our radio ad. So you're promoting it all over. Oh yeah, and it's on the website. I mean, we we, we literally it's 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 been a big part of what we're doing. We're we're talking about the HAFA program. We're not using the word HAFA in the ad, but find out about this free government government program that pays you three thousand dollars to do a short sale. They won't know the word half us. We're certainly not going to go half on the air, just make it confusing to them. But 
we're definitely referring to the HAFA program. We explain it to them. We tell them, here's how you get in it, here's what you need to do to qualify for it, that kind of thing. So the newspaper that you're sending out, what kind of promotion are you doing in it? It used to be called Custom House, and now it's called Discover. They, they changed the name of the company, but Discover Publications, I've been with them, oh, God, I can't remember exactly, maybe six, seven years. I have four zip codes, and then I have uh, uh, my personal list, which is about six, 7,000 papers a month. So the, it totals up around 43,000, 44,000 copies a month we send out. And so on the back of it, we have testimonials that we knew from the previous month. We have testimonials, people telling how happy they are with us. And then we have uh, the dates of our short sale seminars and why they should come to a short sale seminar. The front is an article we write each month talking about market conditions, that kind of thing. The interior is designed by Discover Publications? Yeah. So you just put together the front and the back? Yes. Well, they're, they're, it's actually customized. The paper itself is. No, we, I, w- I wouldn't want to say just the front and the back. That wouldn't be quite true, but it, it would be easier to explain it if I said yes. But it's we actually do quite a bit of stuff to it. <laughs> they set up a template. Yes. So you just have to go in and personalize it. You could, pers- you could personalize it as much or as little as you wanted to. And I would think you'd be the most, like people who use it who don't personalize it much, I I'd seriously doubt they're going to get quite the same uh, impact from it. Like if, to use their generic article for the front page, I think is stupid, but I've seen it done. I just wouldn't do it. Russell, how long have you been in the real estate business? Started in 1978, so this is my 34th year. Congratulations. Thank you. In that time, I imagine you've tried a lot of different things. What was your worst marketing method? Well, I think going to an ad agency was one of the stupidest things we did to make to have the commercial made. I think that was a mistake. I wouldn't do that again. I wouldn't go to an ad agency to have them produce a commercial for me. I thought that was a waste. Let me think other things we did. Uh, I think when I first did a geographic farm and I didn't really understand, I think that was a waste of money. Like, um, it takes a while to get a farm going is one thing. And that I think just not understanding that, you know, when people talk about farming, I think that they often have not considered that if you said the average turnover in any given area in any normal time is 7 to 8% a year. So at any given time when you mail out stuff to a farm, approximately the bulk of the people aren't going to be customers for you right now. So what you're really trying to do is not get them to sign up with you now, but you're attempting to embed yourself into their mind so that when they do need your service, you'll be the one they think of. Because most of them, if you just took 8% at the maximum turnover, and then you went, so in any given year, 92% aren't selling that year, only 8%. And you took the size of the farm, and let's say you had 1,000 houses, so you're going to have 80 sales that year. You get the idea. Now divide that number by 12, and you start to get the order of magnitude of even if you got all the sales, which isn't going to happen, that's not that much business. So how big does your farm need to be to support what you want to do and realize that when you communicate to that size farm, 
you're communicating to people 12 times a year who mostly don't need you right now. So the communication you're sending might want to have that in mind as opposed to a nonstop buy now, call me today, this is it, when most of them aren't going to find that fantastically appealing because it, it, it's not relevant to them. They don't need to call you now. You're not what they're looking for right now. They're not about to sell right now. So there's things like that. And how, how many mailings would you have to do to get proportionate to what you're trying to accomplish? And I, I think that I see that routinely wildly underestimated. But you see the same thing if I say, what's the most important skill for any agent to have of all the skills? And the answer is lead generation. Lead generation is more important than all the other activities combined because you can do everything else perfectly, and if you do that one poorly, you're going to fail. If you do that one well enough, you could actually do everything else poorly and still succeed. So most agents underestimate how many leads they're going to need to succeed and survive and thrive, and they underestimate it wildly. Like, how many leads do you need, really? And I don't mean email addresses. How many leads do you need to make a sale. I see it today in internet leads where they haven't really studied it. And most of the people going around the country blathering about here's how to do it never successfully did it, which I think is astounding. How many leads do you need to generate to create a sale? Well, on that particular subject, what I found is that the average conversion, immediate conversion of Internet leads is roughly between 90 and 100 to make one sale immediately. So when you start looking at that, like if you're talking about immediate sales with Internet leads, it's about roughly between 90 and 100 to generate a closed deal. Interesting thing, the top, and, and for generating seller leads, I consider it uh, pointless gibberish and don't even work on it. It's generating buyer leads, and for that, I'm going to say the best data I ever found was from Mitch Reback out of Melbourne, Florida. And a year before last, Mitch did 330 buyer deals, and Mitch's conversion, because of his drip system, is one out of 30. And so I just copied Mitch's drip system and I used my number one expert site, uh, one of the campaigns in my number one expert site, just set up a campaign to send out those letters on a routine basis. I've got 11,000 email addresses in that system that we send. And we'll do about a, well, we did last year maybe 130 buyer deals. And this year, my target for a number of buyer sides is 200. On your seller side, how many leads do you need to generate in order to, to get a sale? Oh, I don't know anymore. I used to know that number, but short sales threw it into uh, the toilet. I, I don't know what the number is currently. I can tell you if I, if I said for 15 years, uh, depending on what market velocity was, I needed uh, seller calls off the radio ad, I needed between 8 and 12. So if I ballparked it at 10, so for every 10 calls where someone called asking for my what is really my pre-listing package, for every roughly over the years, for 15 years, my average number would have been 10 of those sent out equal to closed sale. Now, but the real number varied from a low of 8 but with the market changing where we like people were calling and instantly listing with this and it 
threw the numbers off. So in 2005, that those, those, my stats went to hell uh, on being able to track and use that as the, my market predictor, and I haven't gotten them back. So I, I still don't have it. I, it, it's, it. It jumps all over the place because of whether we're doing short sales or not or th- this kind of thing. So, But if I were using listings as the guard, yardstick and, and listing inquiries, it would be overall, over the years, this is not a current number, about 10 pre-listing packages equal to closed deal. And I believe we're coming back into a time that number would probably be about right. I believe you mentioned that your early career for the first 12 years, you were an ordinary agent. Yes. And then you became an extraordinary agent. Yes. What was the difference? What happened? Became a lister. Became a lister. I became a lister. I stopped running my ad in uh, Homes Illustrated. I stopped working buyers. I literally burnt the bridge. Um, Like, this is it. I have to learn to list. I didn't know how. I just wanted to learn and decided I was going to be a purist. I wasn't going to work buyers. I gave buyer leads away. I didn't want them. I didn't want to talk to buyers. I only wanted listings. And uh, for several years, I mean, I... uh, I wouldn't even allow buyers, buyer sides in the operation. Didn't want them. Didn't want them at all. Didn't want to screw with them. Didn't want to talk to a buyer. Just wanted listings. Uh, and I went after them with a single-mindedness like this is what I do. I take listings. Almost all, now Mitch is an exception, but almost all top agents around the country, if you look at the profile of successful top agents, they have a listings-based business. And so I took and went, where's the bulk of it come from? The security, the success, it's listings. Uh, Go after listings and learn to list. And so I just, I mean, that was what I did. That's what I went after listings. And I would say that to anyone. If you want to get security, this is not some new thing. It's actually a very old thing in the real estate business. But it's, it's, it's kind of gotten distorted by people, you know, social media and blah, 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 blah. It, it, the truth of the matter is you go out and get listings. And uh, initially, you don't have the money to do fancy, uh, expensive marketing, so you prospect for them. Uh, what's that? Well, you go door to door, do whatever the hell you have to do. Get in front of someone, find someone who's looking to sell a house and go in and talk to them about it. And at first, your presentation, mine certainly was, was extremely crude. And it gets better and better and better until finally you get kind of polished at doing it. But it takes lots and lots and lots of up-to-bats to get good. Russell, what drives you? Well, I don't know. It's funny because you get to different levels. What mostly happens with, uh, I, I saw it happen with me, I see it happen with others. When you don't have any money or you don't have enough money, there's what drives you is money. But you get to a certain point, and you plateau. And uh, like if you haven't been making a, a good good living, you get to start doing 60 deals a year. Well, all of a sudden, you got, you, you're not broke anymore. Then you want to get better, and you go to 100 deals a year. And then all of a sudden, it plateaued again there for three years. And I pushed it to 200 deals. And you plateau there for a few years. But eventually, you know, I, I think what it probably comes down to is impact, not money. Because you can't measure it in money. Like, why am I on this interview right now? Impact. It's like in Gary Keller's book. It says right on the cover, the millionaire real estate agent. It's not about the money. 
and you think, yes, it is. It's about the money. Actually, it isn't. There's a pride. It'd be like if you took a, a, the cello player, Yo-Yo Ma, does he play that well so he'll get more money? I don't think so. I think there's this pride in doing it really, really well, playing the game and winning. I think in the beginning, it's, it is definitely. It's the money. I want the money. I need the money. But eventually, it's just the, the fun of doing it. It literally is the joy of doing it. And we've had some lean years, but we're back where we're playing the game where it's just a fun game to play. And it's it's fun again. It's fun again. We're winning. Uh, we're doing really, really well again. The REO, I didn't want to get into the REO business and didn't. And uh, I'm now glad I didn't. Most people who got into the REO business it just spoiled them, so they couldn't ever really learn to do short sales. They'd, they'd talk about it, but they never could do it because they'd poisoned themselves so much the whole time. And the REO, in my mind, does something really, really bad to the agent. It takes the most important skill there is for, the, for success, which is lead generation, and eliminates it from the equation. <laughs> so they spend years not generating leads. And when the faucets turned off of this method that was just so fabulous, this single source for business, they don't really have a business. They they don't have a business that, that, that they can then sort of repurpose because it just simply went away. And uh, very, very few agents ever make the transition from awesome volume as an REO agent into awesome volume as an agent. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying it's very rare. And it's rare because the the values and the internal uh, viewpoint and the skill set that's required to be a great agent, uh, to be a stably great agent, and not have that one great month. You know, again, when I go back to Gary Keller, you're not looking to have a good year. You're looking to have a great career. So what would you need to do? Uh, what would you need to know? And I couldn't over-recommend his book, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, for someone who's looking for, like, how do I go from being an ordinary agent to a giant agent? There's, 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 the, there's the path right there. It's all written out. It does, it's not a book on here's how to get listings. It's not a book on here's how to drum up some buyer business or here's how to get business from the Internet. It's how do you go what is the mindset? It, it's there, and I just couldn't over recommend the book. I'm not with Keller Williams, and I would just, but I still think I think Gary is probably the smartest, most knowledgeable person on the face of the earth in the English-speaking language when it comes to useful information for success for agents. And I know that's quite a compliment, uh, but I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Russell, if you were to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Work buyers. Absolutely work buyers. I know at the real estate school, they tell them work listings, but these are people telling them that who don't work listings themselves. So that's partially what's wrong with that advice. The other thing that's wrong with that advice is they're pitting an agent who doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground uh, up against seasoned veterans. If you go back to an earlier statement of mine, which is 
buyers are not looking for an agent, they're looking for a house. So a relatively new agent who has a lockbox key, access to MLS, and a car and doesn't smell bad is actually quite acceptable to a buyer. Buyers are not looking for somebody who's going to sell them something. They're looking for someone who's honest and nice. So, like, the fact that I've been in business 34 years doesn't make me lots more desirable to most buyers than somebody six months in the business. So, first of all, uh, you don't have to compete with anyone. Just did you meet them and did they like you? You You could sell them a house. That's number one. Go out and sell at least a dozen houses, learn how the contract works, learn how deals go together, learn uh, sort of the lay of the land and get your sea legs. Then learn to list. Then learn to list. It's a different thing entirely. If I had anything to do over, it would be learn to list sooner. Learn to list, learn to list, learn to list. There's no substitute for it. And uh, regardless of what any instructor anywhere teaches, my answer would be go on listing appointments. I don't care if you do every single thing wrong, go on more of them. Keep going on appointments. Uh, Think of it as a comedian getting stage time, brand new comic getting stage time. Just go on appointments. Keep going on appointments. The minimum number of appointments they need to go on to sort of learn how to do it is 50. They say, I went on 10 appointments. You don't know. You don't know yet. At 20 appointments, you still don't know. At 50, now you've got, you, you want, you, you've been up to, you went in, this is at the table, where you get set at the table, in their kitchen table. All problems in getting listings are either at the table or getting to the table. And the biggest problem most agents have is actually not at the table, it's getting to the table. So if you have even a really stupid presentation, but you had enough up to bats, you'd learn to list and you'd wind up getting business to boot. So that, that'd be my answer. Russell, do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing right now are valuable? In most cases, yes. In some cases, absolutely not. I think there's a ton of top agents. I, I don't think I know for a fact that most successful agents don't actually know why they're successful. When I was on my way up, I made a list of all the top agents in town and would uh, take them to lunch because so I wanted to find out what they knew. And I would sit there across the table from them asking them questions. And at first I thought they were being real cagey with me and keeping the real secret good information back because I got the most gibberish answers you can imagine when I'd ask them, well, how do you get your business? And you'd get stuff like, well, the people just call me. I've been doing it a long People just call me. People like me. And I go, yeah, but how did you get there? They obviously didn't know. Occasionally I find people falsifying stats, making outrageous claims that are just complete crap. How many referrals they get or how much their closing ratios are. They only take them seven sign calls to average a deal. I've heard that one, by the way. Out of every seven random sign calls, they can get a closed escrow. And you think, God, I could never get that good. Yeah, neither could they. Uh, <laughs> it's just crap. It just makes them seem so important to say stuff like that, apparently. But it's a lie. It's just a complete crock. It's not true. It wasn't for them. It never has been. And it's, you know, So part of it is, yes, it's good. But I think that a lot of times agents, I remember one in particular where I thought he didn't know why he was successful. I finally figured out why he was successful. 
he was amazing at asking for business because he'd reinvent his business about every 18 months. He couldn't, he'd do whatever he was doing, he was going to change it. So he never did anything very long. It's still true today. 25 years later, he still just changes it all the time. But he's a, he's a great salesman. He's constant. He's got a real hustle factor. So I think I'd go back to, you know, if some agent's not willing to hustle, I don't think it'll matter which seminars he goes to. I think in having correct technology, like, you know, I've seen a, in the last few years, most of the top agents have been REO agents. Do I think that's, you know, to me, maybe I have a huge bias because I'm not one or wasn't one, but do I think it's amazing to hear how so-and-so sold? In fact, I think Brett Tanner was interviewed by you, right? No, I haven't talked to Brett yet. Now, see, Brett's, Brett did a whole bunch of deals from REO, but I'll tell you something. Like, Brett is such an amazing young guy, just an amazing young guy, that he exudes success and people around him become more successful. But Brett is a, he hustles, Brett hustles up business. But somebody who just latched on to a Fannie Mae account or something like that, I don't know, is it, I don't even, in some cases, the technique they used to get it, they were in a room when something happened. I, it's not like they went, oh my God, that's just brilliant. You know what I mean? And then the person sold 600 houses, and then the account goes away, and now their business goes back to nothing. There was a guy here in town, uh, he was a $5 million a year guy, 3 to $5 million a year. At the height of the REO stuff, he was doing $90 million a year. He lost the accounts, he's back down to like $2 million a year. And he's never gone back up. I go, I don't know, was he successful? I guess, sort of. But he can't replicate it. So I, I think that when there's a when the person can't go do it again, it's like someone says, "I'm just amazing." Okay, do it again. If they can't do it again, then it doesn't have any value. If it can be, like, what were the steps it took you to get that, and could you do it again and again? Like for example, I could take my radio commercial. Is it something unique to my voice? No. Is it unique to Phoenix? No. If I tell you, there's probably currently 25 agents in the country using my copy, my ad, my stuff all over the country that are successful radio ads. It's not my voice on their ad. It's here's copy that works. Here's buttons the public will respond to. Don't advertise on these stations. Advertise on that kind. Do I think it's good? Yeah, because it, it, it's not dependent on authority. You know what I'm saying? Like the atom bursts, whether Professor Einstein gives it permission to burst or not. So something either works or it doesn't. And I think when, as long as the stats that one claims are true and they could be replicated by anyone, like where someone goes, I want to do that too, I want to learn how to do that and follow that model, then I think it's fabulous. And I think it's the most important kind of education there is for our industry. A duplicatable model. There you go. There you go. Well, Russell, I've gotten to the end of my questions. Is there anything else that you want to say we haven't talked about? Yeah, there is. There is one thing. If I were going to impart one final piece of wisdom to anyone, there is a website called tipsforsuccess.org. Click on the part where it says articles or essays. I think it says articles. Tipsforsuccess.org. Click on articles. Scroll down to where it says who's stopping you, part one. That information 
I think of as the most valuable information I know because if you have buyers or sellers or people you're connected to that make you feel crazy, <laughs> that's the problem. Get rid of them. Like disconnect from those people. Like, like the, the biggest problem I see that makes agents leave the business is they get one of these nuts on their lines, and instead of just cutting the line, just write it down to the point where they can't stand being a realtor anymore. And if I were going to pick just a thing to go here, this is important. Learn this. It would be that. It's okay to fire a client. There you go. It's just, in fact, if you're not firing clients from time to time, you're doing something wrong. You aren't promoting enough. Well, Russell, you brought us full circle back to the most important skill any agent needs, lead generation. You've mastered that and more. Your expertise in the area of radio advertising is superb. You really are the godfather of radio ads. You showed us that it's never too late to step up, learn new skills, and go from an ordinary agent to a giant, extraordinary agent. You've developed a duplicatable business that can operate independent of your day-to-day involvement, yet benefits from your leadership, guidance, and direction. You held firm to your convictions through the dramatic market meltdown and are reaping the benefits as the market corrects. It's no wonder you're a billion-dollar agent. You're an inspiration to all aspiring agents. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.